From the Saddle is brought to you by Hewitt Consulting and Communications. Specialising in rural business and marketing design, find them on Facebook and Instagram. From the Saddle. I just need to take five and just go away and recover. <laughs> Not even high pressure, I don't know the word to describe it. <laughs> From the Saddle. I'm Caitlin Hewitt and this is From the Saddle. Josie Angus lives by the motto, bite off more than you can chew and chew like hell. It's clear that this unstoppable mentality drives Josie and her family to achieve what many said would fail. Passion, tenacity and dedication are the driving attributes of their family enterprise. An operation of 35,000 head of cattle, 400,000 acres and multiple beef brands with the newest addition being an on-farm abattoir. A simple love for the land doesn't quite cut it in this situation. It's something that runs through her veins. From the saddle. From the saddle. Good morning, Josie. Thank you so very much for joining us here at From the Saddle podcast. I do feel privileged for you taking the time to have a chat to us today. Thanks so much, Caitlin. Really appreciate being on an exciting new podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Josie... The Angus name, it is quite widely known in the agricultural industry, but so is Cam, which is your background. Josie, take us back, mum and dad and growing up. So, yeah, we had a a great childhood. I think uh, mum and dad were some of the the hardest working people that I've ever known. My mum, you know, operated an office at night, uh, (laughs) a schoolroom and, uh, and in the paddock by day, we worked hard, but it was a lot of fun. We enjoyed it. Had a lot of freedom and a lot of responsibility, I guess, really early on. And uh, it was a great way to grow up. A passion for the land, cattle and horses that you have doesn't really come from thin air. Did it come from this childhood, do you think? Absolutely, it did. I think uh, mum was mum loved her horses. Dad secretly loved his horses, um, <laughs> but he, uh, he, he would frown at them and, and suggest that they took up way too much good working time. But, um, but mum was always, you know, really passionate about horses and, you know, was keen that we were involved with a few local camp drafts and things like that. I was mad about horses and, uh, you know, when the guys were breaking in, I would be a little kid over at the yards and running uh, ropes and whatever they needed, you know, to gear to the guys and s- sitting there studying. I had a really ratty pony who threw me every day, but uh, I was proud because I got the pony first because no one else wanted her. And then she actually had a foal by mistake and uh, it was kind of funny. He grew up, you know, obviously he's a foal of a kid's pony, but I had a this book on Western horsemanship that I studied studiously every night and I'd head down after school, catch this horse with a halter down the paddock, jump on him, ride him bareback and put him in the yards and proceed to formally break him in <laughs> every <laughs> afternoon. It never quite tweaked to me that uh, the fact that I was riding him home bareback from up the paddock probably meant that the, the latter piece of, uh, you know, was a little unnecessary, but anyway. <laughs> so you mentioned that mum had quite the role. She was the bookkeeper. She she worked daily as well, but she was also the school teacher. Were you keen in the schoolroom? Could you not wait to escape it? What was schooling like for you? A bit of both. I mean, I was a bit of a nerd and I did like school. I was lucky. Mum was a gifted teacher. She had no training, but she just was very gifted at teaching us and she thought outside of the box. You know, I did struggle with my 12 times table, but she nicely scratched it into the knee pads of my saddle and so uh, 12 (laughs) times table I got. And uh, I think she inspired in us a great desire to learn and to study. I did struggle at boarding school a little. There was no horses. <laughs> and uh, and I was probably, you know, a pretty independent person. Living with 300 girls was a little challenging. And so whilst I did really well at school academically, I couldn't wait to get out of there. And I think I did actually cry when I was headed back, you know, for my final term, even in year 12. That was just part of the course for me is to shed tears leaving home every single time. So where was boarding school? Boarding school in Toowoomba. Dad used to fly us down in the plane 
it was kind of a full day's flying for him to get down and back. So he would pretty much get us to the airport, kick us out of the plane, not turn the prop off and keep flying back home again. (laughs) Um, But we had five years down there. I was fortunate probably to have dad's parents on the farms um, where Bryce now is living down there. So they used to take us out for a few weekends and, uh, you know, I used to get a little bit of a horse and cattle fix out there at Grandad's, but um, he used to have a, you know, a gelding called Irish that firmly stretched my arms to the point I couldn't get my uniform on by the time I got back to school on Monday. <laughs> but um, no, it was five years of boarding school and uh, yeah, that was it. Josie, it sounds as though that you were always very independent and, you know, mum contributed to that and, and dad, I'm sure in a way. But going to boarding school, did you find that this also led you to grow as a person? Did it teach you new skills that you didn't think or you look back now and think, well, I actually underestimated that? I think learning to deal with people. I mean, I think I was much better at talking to horses and cattle than I was <laughs> talking to people. I was probably a bit feral, but um, I absolutely did have to learn to deal with people from a lot of different walks of life. And I think that was really important. I wouldn't say that I'm by any stage mastered that while I was there, but I think the experience definitely made me grow in that respect. Like I said, I always had a great passion for learning and studying. And even though I'm probably not a believer in the be all and end all of university or even necessarily of the three-day course, I do still believe that, you know, lifelong we should look to learn things and, and whether that has been, you know, a short course or, a, or I am a copious reader to this day and I enjoy reading about new things and, and things that are happening and current affairs and all of those things. So I think obviously, yeah, school played a big role in, I had some great teachers. My economics teacher stood out. I made all my kids study economics because uh, that was the only compulsory thing out of school was, uh, and it all came back to, I guess, my economics teacher at uh, boarding school. And I guess now we have access to so much more information and tutorials and courses than, than back then as well. Oh, 100%. I think, you know, our schoolroom at, at Natel was, you know, contains the encyclopedias of Britannica. <laughs> and, um, and you know, even if I think back to uh, my sister and I, you know, dad was a really hard taskmaster and um, he didn't ever consider that was something a girl might not know how to do or might not be able to do. He just assumed you could do it. He didn't have a lot of time, so he didn't ask him how. <laughs> and um, and uh, it was pre-Google. So my goodness, my childhood would have been easier uh, with Google and YouTube. But yeah, if dad told you to take the points out of that Land Rover and my sister and I would look at each other going, do you know what a point is? I don't know what a point is, but you would work it out. <laughs> yes, pre-Google. Yeah, dad's probably not the generation that teaches as such or teaches you by showing it's more you work it out or you learn by watching. A hundred percent. He was busy. He was, um, you know, but I mean, it was actually brilliant because it just gave us so many skills. And I think just that underlying confidence that when you're faced with something that you have no clue how to do, Mm. um, that you do just have the confidence to have a go. And I think it has certainly stamped my sister and I in what we've done and uh, it was the greatest gift. Josie, I'm a big believer in that the capability that we have as individuals when it comes to horses and animals is something we either have or we don't? I think they're incredibly hard skills to learn and it certainly takes a certain personality to learn them. I think it's an endless frustration of mine in the way that skills are often recognised in that it's way easier to teach somebody how to use Excel at a high level than to operate a horse Mm. or a cow at a high level. So, um, and I think that's so often underappreciated in our industry, just those real skills of stockmanship and horsemanship. You know, I think there was a drive for so long that in ways demeaned those skills that if you were out in the paddock that you weren't necessarily working on your business in the best possible manner. And I'm completely the opposite in that, in that 
particularly as cattle producers, every hour that we're spending with our cattle has massive impact on our bottom line and uh, and those skills of horsemanship and stockmanship are but I think the focus is coming back. You know, I think it's exciting to watch some of the, you know, just what people are sharing on social media and that. I think, you know, a lot of that pride is starting, you know, we, we've done a bit of a 360 and, you know, I can remember sort of sitting around the dining table as, as children with, you know, my father and my grandfather and, you know, they used to have these conversations about who was a cattleman and who wasn't a cattleman, you know, basically based on the, the tractability of their cattle and the quality of their bullets, you know, and uh, and I think for a time we lost that, but I do yeah. feel that that's actually on the way back. Josie, you spoke that dad was very much a, a doer and you watched to learn. Was it the same when it come to horses? Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, my parents didn't really compete in camp drafts. They did have a, you know, a, a small run in the old buffers at Polifanga a couple of times, I can remember. Um, I think mum had a fairly unblemished record with uh, two seconds, I think one to Fred Spanagle and one to John Phelps. So um, that was mum's entire camp drafting career. She was pretty proud of that. Dad didn't fare so well. He only tried one year. <laughs> but that was, um, but I think they had, that hands-on approach. I think dad, you know, even though he, you know, didn't appear horsey, you know, when you stepped on dad's horses, it was like stepping up a gear, you know, and it, it's those those little things that I think dad, because he flew, he, he had a really great knowledge of, you know, some large paddocks and, and uh, you know, it never ceased to amaze us when we were kids that dad could just kind of ride off. We'd be sort of walking a mob along and dad would just sort of ride off randomly from the mob and then come back with six head following him back through the scrub to the main mob and he will have known where there was a gill guy, you know, headed out there and then they would sort of march back behind him and it amazed me as a child and it was always something that I guess I strove to be able to to replicate. But I, I think my horsemanship skills early on were probably, in hindsight, not that great. <laughs> <laughs> you gave it a red hot crack, though. I gave it a red hot crack, but um, but I've had a couple of amazing mentors, kind of, you know, probably in my married life that have really, really made me understand horses a whole lot better. And um, and I think I always had a great love for them. That's the thing. I jumped into the breaking in yard, you know, when I was kind of 16, I was breaking in four-year-olds that were a little rank. <laughs> um, and I couldn't ride a buck jumper to save my life, but I just had to think outside of the box and spend time. And, uh, and I got there, I had some, you know, I had some pretty good stacks as well, but in hindsight, you know, I guess I was just, I was learning by experimentation and that little old book on Western horsemanship. Yeah, absolutely. What did mum think? Uh, mum encouraged it really well. She, I mean, she loved how passionate I was about horses and uh, and even dad though too. I think he was kind of proud of what I used to achieve with them, you know, and he would, uh, it was funny. I think I can remember one smoko time dad was sitting on the veranda um reading the back pages of the country life and there was a uh, you know a gooseneck for sale and it was the days before anybody you know had a gooseneck much and uh we'd always you know gone to camp drafts in the mustering truck and uh dad had said i think we should buy this gooseneck <laughs> and uh, i've just looked at him because you know i think he used to swear and curse Every time we were going to go to a camp draft that it took way too much time and all of these days off work and, you know, we'd go to Nebo camp draft from Natel and uh, we would leave at two o'clock in the morning to arrive there in time to sort of jump on for our first run on the Friday morning because he couldn't bear to lose any working time on the Thursday. And so I was completely gobsmacked when he said, I think we should buy the gooseneck and uh, I sort of looked at him and he looked at the puzzled face uh, uh, and said, well, you know, we'd spend a lot less time, you know, packing up and unpacking and uh, that would be better. And uh, I said, dad, I said, if we bought that gooseneck, it would just be embarrassing. Our horses that we pulled off the truck, it would just be embarrassing, dad. <laughs> <laughs> so did you buy it? 
<laughs> he actually did. <laughs> <laughs> and it was embarrassing, you know, um, our caliber of horses that we used to pull off the back of the truck. But oh, anyway. dear. So, Josie, I don't know. I just think, you, you know, we are losing scope, I guess, a little bit of how important it is to handle cattle from horseback and what that means to us as producers as well. Do you agree? Absolutely. I think it is a culture. It's a history that is important to me. It's taking the time because in the end it does take less time. You know, if you've got great cattle that get released and that have confidence, you know, something that Blair's very strong on and talks about a lot is not only having quiet cattle but having confident cattle, Mm. cattle that will just follow a horse because they know there's going to be some great release there at the end somewhere. And, yeah, I think sometimes, you know, we we can all be in a hurry and um, I know that probably (laughs) as much as any, um, but but it is actually the enjoyment in taking the time, you know, to work with good cattle and to have great horses to work them. It's the sole reason to get out of bed every day. I think Mm. it really is in terms of, um, you know, and I, in these days, I spend way too much time in front of a computer but every moment I get to spend on a horse with some cattle, I think, makes it all the worthwhile. It's interesting to see where the industry has gone in terms of horses, like Dolby Stock or Sal has just been, and, and that is the place to go for your mustering horses and things like that. But there's a very strong performance line coming through as well, but it's still incredibly important that we still have those quality mustering horses. Um, agreed. And uh, although, you know, I've never been one that sort of feels that a competition horse needs to be somehow sheltered from yeah. um, being a workhorse also. You know, yeah. I love um, nothing better than to have a great horse to ride mustering. I believe that sweaty saddle cloths can make really strong competition minds. And I think while sometimes, you know, you love to give that really quick release and do that 20-minute ride where you get that perfect thing and you jump off and loosen the girth and walk back to the yard. I think by the same token, having a horse that's got a little grit and can push through it sometimes in a competition is really important too. So, yeah, I think it's amazing where horsemanship is going. You know, I think back to going to the Rocky Quarter Horse Sale 30 years ago compared to where we are now. I mean, the challenge scene, you know, in the last sort of 15 years, the incredible leaps in horsemanship. It is, it is mind-blowing. It's hard to keep up. It is, uh, it, it's really exciting to me where people are taking horsemanship in our unique Australian events. It's sensational. Yeah, it absolutely is. Let's talk Rocky Quarter Horse Sale. Dad sent you there with a $10,000 check. <laughs> it was. It was pre-mobile phones. Um, my sister and I and a check for $10,000 and away we set off and Dad thought we'd bring home a, you know, a good few mustering geldings. And uh, Ainsley and I were quite taken with a young <laughs> two-year-old Spinifex cult. So Doc's conductor, he was uh, it was a full brother to Phil Conigan's fabulous mare Alchemy, who's kind of his, you know, great granddam of of all the wonderful horses that he has. And uh, conductor, the bidding was a little fierce. Ainsley was doing the bidding. I was doing the poking in the ribs. Thank you, going and uh, <laughs> and we spent a good portion of the ten thousand dollar check on a very pretty bay colt. And then we kind of looked at each other and gravity started <laughs> to, to set in. So we walked downstairs to the payphone and we argued outside the payphone about you ring dad. No, no, this was your idea. You ring him. <laughs> I can't even remember to this day if we actually worked out the courage to have rung dad before we arrived home with a with a stallion. But um, Conductor became a wonderful part of our family. He taught me an extraordinary amount as a horse and then, you know, after mum's accident, it was um, 12 months after she'd had to learn to walk again and all of those things after her fall. She had been at home 
dad had left her at home and he'd gone mustering and he sent home a young ringer to get the wieners in and uh, mum looked out the window and he was running a smash and conductor was in the yards and so mum, who no one thought would, you know, walk or talk again, let alone ride a horse again, uh, <laughs> went over to the yards managed to get a, a saddle on the stallion and uh, and crawl up the rails and jump on him and uh, and Dad got home to Mum with a big grin on her face, mustering wieners. And uh, Conductor then, you know, was, uh, was a pretty powerful horse to ride, but he was pretty amazing with Mum. So, yes, he ended up being a huge part of our family and, uh, and so um, I think Dad got over his initial shock pretty well. Hang on, back up. Tell me about Mum's accident. What was Mum's accident? Um, so mum, yeah, had a, um, a fall. She was just, they were just mum, dad, uh, Bryce and Tess just out, out mustering. It was a Sunday afternoon. They were just shifting some steers and, uh, mum was just trotting along a fence line and she had a, yeah, young horse stumble with her, went down. She had a significant head injury and, uh, she was in a coma, complete coma for, uh, over a couple of months and then sort of almost 12 months of rehab, learning to walk and talk again. What era was this? Um, it was about 24-ish years ago, yeah. Okay. So did she go to Rockhampton? Did she go to Brisbane? Uh, she was flown to Townsville. She spent the first few months in, in Townsville and then rehab in Brisbane. So, yeah. That would have been a, a very scary time for you all because mum seemed to be you know, such a forefront of what you did as kids and as as an enterprise. Oh, absolutely. We were very, very fortunate that she was um, an incredibly strong woman. (laughs) She was in her 50s, but I think, uh, you know, and she was in her 50s with a washboard stomach and I think she wouldn't have, um, you know, I don't think too many people would have made it through without her grit and determination and, Mm. uh, and her fitness and all of, and her strength. But um, we were very fortunate to have another 17 wonderful years of mum after that. And it was amazing uh, what she achieved. So, yeah. That's incredible. And Lucky Conductor was there that day. That's even more incredible. It, it, it is, yeah. He was, uh, you know, her left side didn't work so well, um, you know, but he would always just go to a gate on his right-hand side for her and he really looked after her. It was amazing to watch. That is amazing. So Josie, fast forward, you flew the coop, spread your wings, you met Blair. How old were you and how did you meet your husband, Blair? (laughs) So uh, we we actually met at a Future for Beef conference by the then, by MLA um, in Mackay. And we only briefly met at the conference. Um, We had a little chat but apparently that day, Blair had set his sights on marrying me. Um, <laughs> and then, <laughs> so we didn't see each other, I think, for another six months. I'd headed off for a brief stint at law school in Brisbane, which I didn't enjoy so much. And we saw each other at a friend's wedding then. And uh, he had immediately sort of come up to me and, and chatted. <laughs> I was struggling to remember who he was. Um, <laughs> that he proceeded to get you know, a little merry, and he asked me out for the first time, and I just shook my head. <laughs> and um, and then, not long after, I sort of I left uni, came home, and I was actually down with one of mum and dad's managers at Kikiti, Jimmy Gifford, and I was he was a person that you know helped me a lot with my horses as well. And uh, Blair had rung Pickety to ask if he could take my horses to Wittalabar Camp Draft. I was completely oblivious to this because I'd sort of headed back to Natal to pick up a truck and some horses. And so we spent the weekend at Wittalabar with me not having known that Blair had made the phone call prior to Wittalabar. I thought that he would, you know, be a great boyfriend for my sister. And uh, <laughs> I'd said to Ainsley, this is a Blair Angus. He's a really nice guy, you know. And um, at the end of the weekend, Blair came up to me and asked if he could write me a letter. And there's actually no way that you can say no to that. So um, <laughs> that, was, um, that was the beginning of it. Blair wrote me a very good letter, invited me to Mackay Show, proceeded to take out Champion Bullock of the Show and, I was all lost. So that was it. I was gone. Yeah. <laughs> you were done. You were done. How old were you? 
I was, yeah, 19. So, um, yeah, yeah, I was young. And so we, we went out for six months. We were engaged for six months and we got married when I was 20. Holy dooly. There was no stopping you two. No. <laughs> Blair had a plan. He's good with a plan. He's good with a plan. So what was Blair doing at the time? Like how did you fit into Blair's life and was he on a family property? How did this all work? So Blair had unfortunately lost his dad when Blair was quite young. He's 23 um, when his dad passed suddenly. And uh, and so he was um, very much finding his feet running the family. Uh, so at that stage, they had um, three places, so Kimberley, Sondella, and then a block that on the coast that Blair's parents had intended to retire to eventually. And Blair's mum had moved to town. Blair was living in a shed, batching. They had recently just sold, so only a month or so after Blair's father passed, the mines had approached them about... Um, about wanting to mine their home place and so they had replaced that place with Sondella and sought to do a little succession planning in that as well and making sure that Clover was sort of, you know, um, set up independently as well. That's a lot of change in a short amount of time. <laughs> it was and um, I think, you know, Blair was over there batching in his uh, new shed and um, decided that he probably needed, well, I would say that he needed someone to cook for him, but in all honesty, he's way better cook than I am. <laughs> but, uh, so, yeah, I guess we got married. We started out life in the shed. It was good fun. Wasn't many hours of housework needed, so that was all <laughs> fine by me. I got to spend more hours on a horse and we really did start to look to grow things I know Blair's mum was very keen for us to build a house, but I was more keen to buy cattle stations. <laughs> so um, not that long after we got married, we bought Chesterfield. And I think that's where we started our good mode of operation, you know, bite off more than you can chew and yeah. like hell. Um, yeah. And, you know, Chesterfield was a big block. No one really wanted it because it was in the middle of the, I guess, the tree clearing, you know, the first laws coming in around veg management and it was wall-to-wall remnant from one end to the other, but we pulled it on and, uh, yeah, it's become kind of central to what we do now. And, uh, yeah, I guess we just started to really, really work on, on growing it all. From the saddle. Connected to rural communities and farming families, the team at Hewitt Consulting have a unique understanding and ever-growing portfolio of rural digital and marketing designs. The most reputable marketing and design business in rural Australia. And a few sneaky ones overseas. Logo designs, bull sale catalogues, marketing material, custom trucker caps and merchandise, horse adverts and a whole lot more. Caitlin and Robin understand that each project is as unique as the business it's for. Contact them today, www.hewittconsultingco.com.au. Find them on Facebook and Instagram. From the saddle. How big was Chesterfield or is Chesterfield? Chesterfield's 48,000 acres. So you were fairly busy. You had a bit on. Yes, yeah. <laughs> um, we we then decided to start a family. I was 22 and, uh, you know, straight up got twins. So that was, um, that was added a new layer of excitement to things. And uh, it's a wonder they survived because I probably didn't take a sideways step. I yeah. just dragged two newborn twins out into the paddock every day and we went mustering and uh, and all of those sorts of things. But I think I was too young and silly to really have a clue that, you know, maybe I should have slowed it down a bit or given them a routine or something that you're meant to do when you're a new mother. But anyway, it was good that we were very lucky. They were very healthy and easy babies. And, um, and so then all of a sudden we had four children under five years of age. Holy um, And I look back now and go, I don't know how we actually did that, but we did. And <laughs> I was pretty keen that, you know, I'd watched my mum teach school and I guess we had three of us in a group and then Bryce was a bit the afterthought. So mum had finished grade seven with Simon and then started the very next year teaching Bryce grade one. And I was like, never doing that. So I decided we needed a family in a hurry so I didn't have to spend 
too many years in the schoolroom. So, wow. <laughs> so four under five sounded like a good idea at the time. That was my justification. <laughs> and no regrets. So, Josie, did you homeschool all your kids? Uh, Yes, I did. Um, It was a very enjoyable time. You know, they're probably scarred for life. (laughs) But but no, we had a lot of fun. You know, I think we were very fortunate to go through distance ed before as much, you know, computer and everything. So, it was very paper-based when we went through. So, I guess we got the great end of distance ed in terms of, you know, particularly when we first bought Carpenteria, you know, being able to go up there, help lamp brand in the mornings and then take school down the river on a blanket and, you know, do school in the sand. Those were the magic days and um, feel very fortunate to have had that time with the kids and, and to be a big part of their education and growing up. And I think it's a special gift to be able to do that. And uh, there was plenty of days where we screamed at each other, but we all made it through in the <laughs> end. So that was great. Let's take a step back. You were raised on the land. Blair was raised on the land. Coming together as one, did you share the same beliefs and visions, I guess, for producing cattle and, and what was important in doing that? I think fundamentally, yes. You know, there was that early teething issues about differences in mustering styles that that created some early tensions. But look, I mean, in hindsight, coming into the relationship, I had a fraction of the knowledge around cattle that Blair did. And um, I know I sound biased, he's my husband, but he just really does have some rare gifts in both handling them but also kind of assessing and breeding them and uh, it amazes me all of the time to watch the herd coming together and, you know, when we've taken some really big steps like when we bought Carbon Terrier and, you know, obviously, you know, sort of bought some females from everywhere to stock it and to watch them morph into this incredibly consistent line in in a period of 15 years. He has a great skill to develop consistency in phenotype and um, he's got some very firm beliefs, a lot of which came all the way from his dad and we call them the witch doctor theories, but um, we're pretty proud of the beef that we produce and the herd, you know, phenotypically. I think, uh, you know, you never breed the perfect one, but, but there's a whole lot of them that drive around go wow. So, yeah. So, talk to me about the witch doctor theories. What do you mean? (laughs) So, um, I guess Blair's, um, he's always undressed cattle um, in terms of thinking about the end consumer. So, for him, I mean, hair type is a a really big thing, so fineness of hair. Um, He's a strong belief that there's a strong correlation between the texture of the meat, so the fineness of um, the meat fibres or fibre bundles as compared to the finest of their hair. And it's interesting, you know, when you read back to some of the old Scottish judges in the 1800s and they talked about the mossy coat. I'm not very good at doing a broad Scottish accent. My husband does it a lot better. But, um, <laughs> but uh, you know, that when you look at an animal and you can see those tiny little like spider's webs almost on the ends of their hair as the sun shines on them, um, it's not really about length of hair so much, but that fineness... It's been fundamental and underlying the whole way through. I think moderation in a lot of things, you know, he likes balance. And then, you know, there's some some few things on even down to fineness of pizzle. So if we're like, you know, so we have a, a longer fed brand that we do, you know, so we'll just go into the feedlot pens um, with horses and uh, and we'll just cut out bullocks that, he believes phenotypically fit the program and then we choose them to go into our top tier brand and there's a few things that he looks for and, uh, you know, he's kind of good at picking um, mus- both muscle shape and, and yield. So we have focus on yield but then softness of muscle as well and being able to sort of see that, you know, the shape that's going to be in a strip loin by the, you know, the skeletal structure of an animal, things like that. That's that's what the witch doctor is good at. <laughs> does it blow your mind? It does really. And uh, I've been practicing for 28 years. And, you know, if he's away and I'm the one who gets to cut out the 
we call them oinogastus that's our top brand and it's a Celtic word that goes it's the origins of the word Angus and it means one choice but um, <laughs> if I'm the one who gets cut out the oinogastus bullocks you know you can just see that odd little frown as Blair walks into the oino pen like who put that one in there <laughs> <laughs> so um so yes I haven't perfected all of the witch doctor theories and uh you know I know that you know a few times you know for carcass comps I've had a go at you know sort of selecting and uh yeah he always outdoes me I'm afraid. (laughs) Josie we have a lot of international listeners so paint us a picture of yours and Blair's life as a whole you know how many head of cattle how many acres are we talking what is what's a day look like for Josie and Blair Angus Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Um, no two days are ever the same but I'll have a go um no so we run yeah about 35,000 head across 400,000 acres in northern and central Queensland on some beautiful cattle country a day for us, you know, generally it is either mustering cattle, working cattle or, um, you know, maintaining land, which takes a lot of work. But more recently, obviously, we've um, embarked on a, a major project in terms of taking our beef to what we believe will be the next level and uh, and that involves processing on farm and uh, and that has been a little all-consuming um, recently so our trips out on a horse are a little bit more sneaky lately although in the last month or so Blair's had a nice couple of weeks up tailing wieners at Carpentaria which is his uh, his soul food I guess mm-hmm. so yeah. So tell us about Signature on farm. Yes, it's been a um, it has been a labour of love. It's been the greatest challenge that I could have imagined that we would have taken on. Um, off the back of 2013, 2014, we saw record beef prices coupled with cattle prices that were in a in a horrible drop all around the constriction of access to processing. So the processes were full. They were all running with steam coming out of their ears. And um, we started to become concerned about access to processing. Were we always going to be able to, I guess, you know, truck our cattle as far as we were consistently to get to a, uh, you know, particularly a service processing plant? And, you know, would there always be a time where we could actually act access processing when we needed it. And I guess that sowed the seeds. We are very fortunate that those four under five kids all turn out to be hugely passionate about the industry as well. And so, um, yeah, on a long car ride from Houston to Amarillo to look at Metallic Cat, we had a bit of a family board meeting and said, okay, <laughs> how do we feel about building an abattoir? And uh, anyway, everyone, the end of the board meeting was that everyone was uh, was all in. We probably took sort of six months to, you know, to concrete up a development application and, um, you know, to really sort of cement those plans. And uh, we submitted them to our local council. It was in a time where every local council in Queensland seemingly wanted to build an abattoir. We probably escaped us that ours maybe didn't. So um, it did take us a very long four years to get a council DA and we had a few challenges, but we got there in the end. And then, yeah, we got serious about building. Um, building's another whole world of challenge, mm-hmm. particularly, you know, it's a 6,000 square metre shed. It's pretty big. And so it certainly had its own challenges. But um, And now, um, yeah, we've really started to sort of crank it into gear and um, and processing cattle and it works a treat. <laughs> so seven years, seven years from the initial idea to, you know, mm. and where else does a family board meeting happen other than in the car on the way to a metallic cat? I mean, if that's not where you have <laughs> board meetings, do you even produce cattle or, or have board meetings? <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> seven years, Josie, does it, do you look back and think, how did we do that? Or is it a blur? Um, I think we, we look back and I think our tenacity probably does surprise us in ways. You know, I think there was so many times where probably, you know, anyone in their right mind would have exited stage left, I mm. think. Um, but, you know, I guess we'd shown that a little bit 
before, you know, it had been 23 years that we'd been doing branded beef. And I think when we first started doing branded beef, we were one of the really early starters, but then we saw, you know, a lot of people enter the market and leave again in quick succession. But I think we sort of stuck to our guns through that. And that probably, you know, I guess gave us more drive to to stick with this. And the fact that I think we were in the very fortunate position that we had both a cattle supply and we had established customers in 30 countries. So mm. I think if we hadn't have had particularly the markets, I think it would have got too hard. Yeah. 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 I mean, in today's society, the agricultural industry is, you know, it cops a hard time. There's a lot of fake beef and, you know, we are copying it. So to start a processing plant is, yeah, that that would have been tough and it would have probably opened your eyes up a little bit. Oh, it has. I mean, I had, um, you know, potentially talked about regulation and how bad it was within the pastoral industry. It is, <laughs> it is next level here. But I think it's certainly been a greater challenge than, than we probably could have imagined on that car trip to Amarillo. I mean, there was plenty of people who said to us, this will never work. I've had lots of people say to me, oh, you're very brave. <laughs> I'm not sure quite how to take that sometimes. And, uh, you know, we have had people who wholeheartedly come up to you with a smile on your face and say, you know, you are going to fail. And um, oh, wow. and so, um, yeah, in, in the nicest possible manner. But good on you for having a go, you know. But, yeah. um, but no, it is, um, look, I think Blair and I have never shied away from a challenge and we did want to, we just wanted to do it differently. You know, I think COVID showed us all the fragility of mm. um, consolidated supply chains, of probably the false expectation that economies of scale were going to reduce cost and all of those things. And I guess, you know, we had a secondary trip back to America. We were lucky. Our oldest daughter studied in America for four years. She did meat and animal science up in Colorado and she... Um, and on one of our trips over there and in the early days of planning, we actually did a spring break road trip, six abattoirs across America in five days. <laughs> and, um, and what we actually learned was that bigger wasn't necessarily better at all. And we went everything all the way from the tiny boutique, 20 head a day, you know, with a real focus on pharmaceutical recovery all the way through to the, you know, monolithic 6,000 a head a day based on the chain every nine seconds at JBS. Mm. We watched those, some of those boutique plants who had labour efficiencies that were two, three times that of the big plants. And we just saw, I guess, just the opportunities in product differentiation, byproduct recovery, all of those things. Sometimes when you know, we slow a process down, we can actually create more value out of it. And it's our fear that um, in our industry, you know, we've actually gone backwards in, in that a little. So, you know, if you look at some of the older plants that still exist, you know, they had rooms that did tennis racket strings. So the amount of, you know, particularly fifth quarter recovery that had occurred was maybe you know, being forgotten a little and, uh, you know, all pummeled through a rendering plant for the sake of feeding the rendering plant and just that eternal focus on, well, if we speed the chain up, we're definitely doing better, mm. you know. So losing yield and primal yield and things like that through speed, that were all things that we that we really sought to address, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Josie, with all great things come sacrifices, what about sacrifices along the way that you guys had to make as a family to, to make this happen mm. and do every day still? Yeah. I think that's the greatest thing that keeps me awake some nights. I'm a pretty good sleeper. But that um, <laughs> I think, you know, I think sometimes back to, you know, Blair and my early marriage and, you know, just driving out into a paddock and sitting down and boiling a billy with a mob of cows just so that they kind of gathered around you and you spent some time with them, you know. And um, and I think back to some of those things and and I fear that sometimes we make our children too busy and um, it's not as if we're standing behind them cracking the whip. 
they have grabbed this bull by the horns and they, you know, they are really driving it and leading it themselves and it's amazing to watch you know, what they're achieving and how they're building a team around them and the respect that that team has for them, that's really exciting to watch. And there's no doubt that sometimes you hang, hanker for that billy yourself. <laughs> and um, and, um, and there's, there's no doubt sometimes that that's my greatest fear is that, uh, that they do burn themselves out. I'm a believer that it's our fear that drives us. The fear of failing, the fear of, you know, all those people that came up to you and said, you will fail. It's secretly that burns us to keep us going at the same time. Uh, there's no doubt that, you know, sometimes those people <laughs> do do feel your fire um, a little. And, and I think pride, you know, was a huge driver as well yeah. in terms of not just fear, but in keeping things moving forward. But I also think that sometimes challenge can deliver some of the greatest rewards. And um, it's interesting, you know, working with people and building a team. And and sometimes I feel that one of the greatest rewards that you can give to somebody working with you is to be able to challenge them, you know, on a daily basis. I think sometimes it can deliver great personal reward to them to meet those challenges and, and to achieve them. Absolutely. So Josie, what's the key to juggling all these different roles that you have? And, and as a family, what, what is the key for you personally? In a word, family. Uh, you know, I think we are extraordinarily blessed to have a family that are, that are all so interested, that are all so like-minded. You know, we're all able to enjoy competing in a camp draft together. We all have a great passion for our horses and cattle and beef. And um, and I think we're all able to shoulder, understand what everyone else is kind of thinking and, and understand the challenges that each other are facing and be able to kind of all help each other. So I think family is, uh, is the secret. As a family enterprise, do you believe it is important to involve your children in the decision-making process? Oh, 100%. I think giving responsibility, you know, is really important. And uh, we've been lucky, you know, to have children that want to take up those reins of responsibility. But I think too often we don't give responsibility. And I think in our industry, there's kind of a feeling that if you pass over the reins that you never get to ride again, mm, if that makes sense. It does. You yeah. know, and I think it's been a big driver of us to, um, I don't like the word diversify because, I, you know, I, we very much throw on our whole heart into our enterprise and we haven't got any, you know, we've not sort of diversified in some sense. You know, building Signature Beef early on was a great uh, illustration for our kids you know, they were manning trade stands in France selling beef as nine-year-olds. And what it taught them was that you can actually build businesses that are cash flow businesses. I think so many times kids on the land get trapped by this feeling that unless I've got this massive bundle of capital or unless I've got this block of land, then that's it. I can't, you know, sort of build a business. But Signature Beef, you know, was a a company that bought cattle, sold meat, rented an office, had almost zero capital, but quickly moved to a turnover that's three times greater than our pastoral company. Um, the kids saw that. I think um, the kids also saw feedback from consumers. So they got to go to England and have people tell them that this is the greatest piece of meat I've ever eaten. And when you compare that to the average feedback sheet that tells you what you did wrong. <laughs> um, it is a great incentive and driver to repeat it and do it again. And so so I think, you know, in diversifying our business within the beef industry, we've been able to, I guess, present new challenges to the kids, but new opportunities. And I think, um, you know, the skills that they're learning around people right now, their skills that would take them anywhere in life. And mm. I think um, it's pretty amazing to watch them 
sort of learning and making your mistake and stumble, but um, but learning, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I guess it's the age-old saying, if you always do what you've always done, you'll always get what you've always got. I guess so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Josie, what is your advice to someone that is wanting to start, I guess, a new business adventure or even just someone that's on the land that's, you know, ticking away, working for mum and dad, that's where they want to be, but they also want to do their own thing. What would your advice be to them? I think it is don't be afraid and give it your 100%. You know, I think sometimes people are fearful of um, maintaining the right work-life balance or things like that. I'm a firm believer in do what you love doing and uh, and it's never work, it's life, you know. Yeah. And, um, yeah. and so, yeah, I think it is just give it 100% whatever you're doing and I think that's the single key to, uh, to making a success of it. Josie, as an industry, as an agricultural or a beef industry, where do you see it going? Well, you're asking me all the hard questions. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think um, I think it's really important that we maintain a huge level of pride in our industry. And it's sometimes, you know, I've been seen as the agitator or the person who bucked against the traces, but nothing disappoints me more in our industry sometimes than when we when we apologize. Um in terms of, you know, to me, we have the greatest stories to tell. If anyone worries about what consumers think, invite them to your place because they'll be blown away. Mm. We have a huge amount to be proud of. I'm very strong that we need to really celebrate the culture that we have because it is unique. Our youth and our the families within our industry are some of the greatest minds and characters that we have in our country. Their tenacity, their innovation and just their sheer skill levels are, you know, second to none in my opinion and uh, and I think we need to celebrate that a lot more. I really want to see, you know, more manufacturing come back to the bush and not just meat processing but, um, you know, I'd like to see more people do what we've done Hopefully, there's a better blueprint than, you know, the exact <laughs> pathway we took. But, um, but I think it's a good thing if we can illustrate that it can be done. And I think there's a number of families out there with the capacity to do this. And I think um, I'd love to see more of it. And, yeah, I do think that there's going to be some rocky times ahead. You know, I do feel that our great global financial overlords have kicked the can down the road very nicely for <laughs> for the last uh, 24 odd years. But I do feel that at some point, potentially it's going to come to a head. So I do feel great families will survive. We've survived, you know, so many times before. And uh, I think that's the strength of the Australian beef industry is the families within it. And so I'm sure that we'll make it through and keep powering onwards. Absolutely. Well, Josie, I do thank you very much for joining us today and and congratulations on pushing through and and just sticking to your guns and and bringing the next generation in, in in such a powerful and, I guess, motivated way. Thank you very, very much for having me, Caitlin. And congratulations also on your podcast. It's wonderful to see the effort going into initiatives like this because uh, it's a powerful tool to tell our stories and I appreciate your work very much. Thank you. Absolutely. I agree. It's very important to keep history alive and, and that's what the industry needs. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks to our sponsor, Hewitt Consulting and Communications.